0: Well, we're going to look at the last part of Second Peter 3 here, and we're going to begin in verse 11. And this is what it says. It says, Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given Him, as He does in the letters when He speaks in them of these matters." So Peter concludes this letter to believers that starts with us being reminded of the, the calling, the election that God has granted, the salvation that He has given. And then he takes us into chapter two, saying, Listen, if you're going to stand firm in your faith, you need to know that there are false teachers that are looking to lead you astray. And then he concludes in this last chapter in he tells us that Jesus is returning and that there will be a day of judgment. And as we saw last week, there was certainty around this coming of Christ. And because of that certainty, as followers of Christ, we need to move with an urgency into the will of God. Well, verse 11 begins this way. It says, "...since all these things are thus to be dissolved." Now that's an interesting way to begin that verse, but it's tied directly to verse 10. And so in verse 10, it tells us what all these things are and what all these things are referring to. It says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So Peter is specifically talking about the second coming, Of Christ and the destruction of the heavens and the earth as a part of his judgment. If you'll recall that at the the foundation of sin, as sin enters into the world, creation becomes depraved. It becomes it's it's lingering in destruction, in a state of decay, as Romans 8 calls it. And when Christ returns, and upon his judgment, when he he comes to judge the world separating the righteous from the unrighteous, those who have believed on Christ for their salvation, and those who have rejected the grace of God, rejected His gift on the cross, it says that they will be judged. And what we're told here is we're told that the heavens and the heavenly bodies, it says, will be destroyed and the the works of the earth will be exposed for what they are. The righteous for the righteous and the unrighteous for the unrighteous. You see, he's pointing us to this day that Christ is returning. And so in verse 11, he continues, What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? Now, there's an important distinction between verse 10 and verse 11. Last week, there was this this plea for urgency and for certainty, that the certainty of Christ's coming leads us into this urgent pursuit of Christ and His will. And because destruction is coming for the lost, it moves us into a passionate pursuit of the lost, a loving pursuit to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, that we have a Savior that died for us, that took the penalty of our sin. He shed His blood, and through His blood being shed, we're granted forgiveness, and He dies that death. He takes our rightful punishment, our rightful penalty, and then He rises again on the third day, defeating the power of death, giving the believer victory over sin and new life in Him. What's the distinction here between verse 10 and 11? The distinction that is said here is that in verse 10, it refers to this day as the day of the Lord, which is throughout the Old Testament, the phrase that's used for the judgment, the judgment against the unsaved. But in verse 11, he refers to it as the coming day of God. You see, the emphasis here is no longer on the judgment of God, but rather His restoration in righteousness. There's a shift. He says, yes, I want you to understand that judgment is coming, but for the believer, understand that He's going to restore us in righteousness. That's the point of His return is restoration of His creation. All those who have repented and believed on Him, restored. One commentator puts it this way, a new earth, new bodies, an uninterrupted joy in the presence of God through His Son, our Savior. This is a great contrast to the old earth, here, sin and sorrow, there, and the new, righteousness and peace. What a radical difference. You see, it is easy to focus on the destruction of the day of judgment which is to come, the Armageddon, so to speak. And Peter immediately moves us off and says, wait a second, for the believer, for those that have repented and believed on Jesus for salvation, guess what? They don't experience that. They experience the righteousness of Christ, the peace of Christ, the restoration of His creation. What an awesome thing. Peter's pointing us to the resurrected Christ who is now returning for His people, restoring them in His glory. Now notice how they wait. Peter says that they are waiting for and hastening the coming day of God. See, as followers of Christ, His return should excite us, not frighten us. I've shared with you some of of you before that when I was young, I can still remember, I was in fifth grade and I was told that we were going to go to Disneyland. And on 4th of July, we're driving down the road and after all the fireworks, the chemicals were in the air and the moon looked like this red hue. And I knew enough that as Scripture spoke about what that might look like in the last day, I remember saying to my parents, I just hope that Jesus doesn't come before I get to go to Disneyland. You know, and that's the way we are, aren't we, a lot of times? Like, God, just let me experience this before you come. But the truth is, as followers of Christ, we're hastening that day, the coming day of the Lord. It should excite us, not frighten us. We shouldn't feel like we're missing it. You see, heaven has nothing, has nothing that can compare to it. Imagine your best experience at Disneyland. And it doesn't even do it justice. It's not even a blip on the radar of being in the presence of God and His restored creation. So, as followers of Christ, we're to eagerly anticipate the restoration and righteousness of Christ's return. God restores us. There will be no more sin. There will be no sorrow. There will be no more pain. there will be complete restoration. Think about this for a moment. The greatest, most beautiful picture that you've seen. The, the most beautiful environment you've ever been into. This past summer, my, my mom blessed us with a, a, a trip to, to Europe and to, to Norway and Being in the middle of the fjords in Norway, there's nothing that I had seen that was like it. It was beautiful. But then we're reminded that that's actually in a state of decay. It doesn't even compare to the beauty that will come when Christ restores His creation and the new heavens and new earth. And so we're to eagerly anticipate all those things that today frighten you, that you're anxious about. All those things that bring pain to you. Upon Christ's return, it's gone. All those ailments that seem to nag at you, gone. But more than that, we get to be in the presence of of Jesus and the presence of the Father. Revelation 21, 1-4 says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Isn't that an awesome picture? And the reason that Peter is moving us in this direction of saying, listen, if you're a follower of Christ, You need to realize that this is what's happening upon Christ's return, and it should bring eager anticipation to your heart. Why is it so important? Well, that eager anticipation is actually part of the motivation that prepares us for His coming. You see, when I understand what Christ is going to do, that there's going to be restoration, that I'm not going to be sinful anymore, those sins that still try to jump into my life and take control, they're going to be gone. There's not going to be pain, there's going to be unity. When I understand that, and I understand what Christ has done for me, and I'm not worthy of this restoration or of his righteousness, but it is because of Jesus' work that we have it. That then, I can rejoice in it. You see, that anticipation of what's to come actually helps prepare the way. Think of a bride before her, her, her wedding. That anticipation that's coming. For some, that's like a, a year-long process or more. I was reading a, a a recent study that was done and it laid out for each state the average cost, the average wedding cost per person or per couple, per state. California, ironically, was not the highest. Alaska was. But California, in California, the average wedding cost, and I'm guessing this in covers everything from the beginning of of the buying the dress all the way up probably to the honeymoon. But the average cost, it says, is roughly $31,000. With the average cost in the San Francisco Bay Area of $39,475. Which still wasn't the most expensive region in California. The lowest cost in terms of per state within our nation, was Alabama at roughly $17,000. Now, I would say that that's not to say that that's what's going to happen in my household. I can tell you that that's probably not what's going to happen. But it's saying that that's what's being spent on weddings each year. Why? Because of this anticipation of what's to come and I'm not using that as the motivation that those are right motives. What I'm sharing with you is is that anticipation does something to us. It moves us forward. It helps us prepare. Think about that bride. Most brides know the details of their wedding. They have it planned, and it's methodical, and it's important. And grooms do too. But most of the time, brides are more detailed with that than the grooms are. They're preparing for what's to come with their their groom, and they're looking forward to it. And as they, they become, in this wedding, this union, they're preparing to look their best and to be their best. Their hair's being done. They're, they're making sure that The bridesmaids are dressed appropriately, standing in the right places. The details of what's going to happen throughout the ceremony and what's going to happen in the reception are all being taken care of. And there's timelines. If you think about it, it's one of the few ceremonies where we have very strict timelines because it's important. In the same way, we need to see ourselves as the bride waiting for her groom as the followers of Christ. We need to be a people, a a church that is preparing, that's looking and saying, how best do do I present myself to my groom? And so that's the question that's being asked. He says here, What sort of people ought you ought to be in lives of holiness and godliness? And then in verse fourteen he says, "Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found with him by without spot or blemish, and at peace." So, what are the characteristics which we which ought to mark our spiritual lives as we eagerly anticipate Christ's return? He's telling us how we ought to live lives of holiness and godliness as we wait. And so these are the characteristics which ought to mark our spiritual lives as we wait for Christ's return. The first is peace and purity. Peace and purity. That aspect where it says here, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. That means to to be found without sin. Now, we know that Jesus went to the cross for us and, and He was out without spot or blemish. He was the perfect Lamb and we are granted His righteousness. And so positionally before Christ, we're righteous. But morally in our lives, God is still sanctifying and working in our hearts. You see, Hebrews 10, 26-36 says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. You see, God's calling us to obedience. But more than that, what He's saying is is that when we are walking in obedience with Christ, we will experience the peace of His grace. And so we are to be a people who are experiencing his peace. And the peace we are experiencing is coming from a life of purity, a life of holiness, a life of submission and surrender to Christ, where we're walking in obedience to him. One pastor put it this way he said, He said, The real challenge of Christian living is not to create a perfect world so you'll be happy but to live in a fallen world as a fallen sinful person surrounded by fallen people in the midst of all the manifestation of the curse, enduring all the pain and having perfect peace that all is well between you and God and that as purposes for you will unfold perfectly as revealed in the scripture. That is the peace of assurance. That is the peace of security. It's a peace that comes when we're walking righteously with Christ. Listen, God never intended us to be at peace when we're walking in unrepentant sin. God never intended us to be at peace when we're willfully choosing sin. And so he's saying, as you live in anticipation, we should be marked by the peace and purity marked by peace that comes from obedient life. It's not an excuse to live carelessly before the Lord. Many of you know Mark Stone, and Mark's been battling ALS. As many of you have heard him share, just about how God has used this as a sanctifying time in his own life, where even coming before, God just moving out different impurities and different different things that he's working on as, as God does in our suffering. As I was talking with Mark this last week and I asked him if I could share this. He shared with me this one thing. He said, Tim, I pray I, I pray that God would still heal me and that God would give me more ministry. But I also pray that if he doesn't that he allows me to have a Stephen moment in my death, that I would have the peace of God as I look into heaven's, and I die with His peace, not in terror. And it would have been so natural for Stephen to die in terror as he was being stoned, and yet the peace of God overwhelmed him, and that was Mark's prayer. And what Mark, that's knowing that was that it just moved me to emotion with that, because yeah. That's what we want is the peace of God that we can go before God and whatever is happening there is peace because we know that we are right with God and there is confidence that we are right with God The second characteristic is found in this the middle part of this passage in verse 15 and 16 And it says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Well, what's he actually speaking about here? The first characteristic is that we're to have peace and purity. The second characteristic is that we're to trust in God's merciful word, even the portions which are hard and difficult to understand. We're to trust in God's merciful word, even the portions which are hard and difficult to understand. See, waiting for Christ to return is actually a reminder of His mercy for us and His mercy towards us. It actually reminds us that He's not done. It reminds us of verse 9 which says that the Lord is slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. When we're waiting for God, we should be reminded that it's God's mercy at work and that we can trust that His Word is merciful. It, it also means that as we trust His Word and we trust that, that His Word is pointing us towards God's grace, that we can have confidence that God is working on our behalf for His good and for our good even when we don't understand. You see, what Peter does here is he says here that we're to count the patience of our Lord as salvation just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you. What he's doing is he's, he's confirming the Scriptures. He's telling them, listen, my words can be trusted. Paul said them too. We didn't collaborate on this. And so he's saying that God's Word is actually trustworthy and it has authority and that it's inspired. And so we need to be a people who are trusting God's Word. There are things in God's Word that we don't understand in the world. Some things that God does in our lives doesn't seem like it's an act of mercy until after the fact. God tells us that we're to count it joy in our suffering. Why? Because God is actually working in us and purifying out sin and He's leading us to persevere in faith. Truthfully, even sometimes when we think of of passages like Matthew 18 and in church discipline process how does this work what does it really mean to then treat somebody like a tax collector or a gentile in our our culture and in our senses sometimes that doesn't make sense and yet we have to trust that God's worthy is actually merciful that it is mercy towards the person, that none should perish, that God will do whatever it takes to try to bring repentance in a person's life. Romans 2, 3-5 says, Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to Repentance. Because of your hard and impetent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Do you see what he says there? That his delay is actually meant as kindness. And so we need to trust that God's word is merciful. And we need to, to be a people who don't just choose the easy things, but also walk in the hard things of Scripture. John Piper adds this when he he deals with speaking of of hard-to-understand passages. He says, It does not mean that we can abandon our calling to preach the whole counsel of God. And therefore, it should be expected that preaching will sometimes be the most demanding thing you will hear all week. I can't see how it be otherwise unless I make it easy what the apostles couldn't. The truth is, is that there are hard truths in the scriptures that God calls us to, and in our flesh, they don't always seem to be the way that we would do them. But we have to be a people who trust that God's word is merciful, and so we need to be characterized in holiness and godliness by trusting in God's merciful word, even the things that are hard and difficult to understand. Finally. Peter instructs them in one final way about how they are to live in holiness and godliness in this anticipation. How they are to be characterized as they anticipate the return of Christ. And that final piece deals with spiritual growth. Spiritual growth. The first is peace and purity. The second is trusting in God's merciful word. And the third is, is spiritual growth. Verse 17 and 18 says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, what they've been instructed to do here is to stand firm, to remain faithful. But then he says, not only do I want you to remain faithful, but know that faithfulness has a part to it in which you're growing. And so we're not to, to kick back and to become complacent in our walk with God. We're not to simply say, yeah, I'm, I'm obedient to you, Lord. And yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm doing what I need to be doing. And uh, there's no rampant sin in my life. And yes, I trust God's Word. That's good enough. I'll wait. Well, we have a God that desires to reveal Himself more and more An infinite God who we can't fully understand. Who who gives us understanding of who He is. And what we're being told is to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Our relationship with God is not to grow stagnant. In marriages, one of the best things in a marriage is to be able to know your spouse in new ways. There are times that you can get tired and you can can be upset one day and you can be frustrated the next and you can be joyous the next day and excited the next day. All ups and downs. And yet what God desires us to do is to know Him more in the same way that God often desires us to know things about our friends and our family in different ways. You see, often it's difficult in our finite minds to to know how we can understand more of God, and yet God will reveal more of Himself as we pursue Him. We need to experience the power of His grace and so we're told in 1 Peter 2, 1-3, through 3, Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. He, he's saying long for Jesus. If you're struggling in God's Word, I want to encourage you, seek Him in prayer. Dive into His Word. It doesn't have to be a grand chapter. Start with small little snippets of His Word. Pray on it. Sit on it. Meditate on it. We need to be a people who are growing, who are actually living life, not because they have to for the Lord, but because they get to for the Lord. 2 Timothy 2, 1-4 adds, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. We need to be strengthened in God's grace as we submit ourselves to him and as his word reveals more about who he is. So, this aspect of peace and purity, trusting in the merciful word of God, and spiritual growth is how we're instructed to live in anticipation of Christ's return. And then we're told in verse 18 why. Simple ending phrase. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. You see, holiness and godliness in our lives glorifies Christ. Holiness and godliness in our lives glorifies Christ. And it is for the glory of Christ that we live in his holiness, that we live in godliness and that we live in anticipation of his return. May we no longer look at the end times with just a a heart to figure out how God's going to come back. May, May we no longer just plead with God to return, but may we be a people who plead that God will fulfill his will in his timing. And may we be a people who live with purpose, righteously pursuing Him, not with a complacent heart, but with a diligent heart for His glory and not our own. Let's pray. Father, thanks. Thanks that it's You in our lives that allow us to experience Your grace. We thank you for a coming return. A return that restores your creation to righteousness, in which your righteousness dwells. We thank you that you do separate the unrighteous from the righteous in those days, and we thank you for the promise that you've granted. Salvation that can be experienced today, life that we have, peace and purity. Uh, your merciful word that guides us even when we don't fully understand. And a call that spiritual growth that calls us to know you more and more each day so that we might be strengthened in the power of your grace. Lord, may we live in this season, in this time, in this shelter in place, not focusing on the fear of the situation, but living by the confidence of Jesus, knowing that he is working out his will. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.